Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, this is the first episode we've done from our new apartment, and uh, I'm anxious to see how it sounds because the ceilings are really high and there's not a lot of furniture in this room. Right, and also I don't have the stand that I usually rest my phone on. Uh Uh-oh. So I feel very awkward and like, what do I do with my hands Ricky Bobby style, uh, but I guess we're going to see how it goes. One of the fun things about about moving is when you're packing, you get to purge, get rid of some things that you necessarily don't need. And uh, sometimes unpacking can be as equally adventurous because you find things you forgot you had. Yeah, I was unpacking a box that had like tea and coffee and some dry goods in it. And in that box, I found half an empanada, <laughs> which I, I had acquired some delicious empanadas from a place downtown. Uh, it was good, but I don't remember taking a bite of one and then putting the other half in a box. Do you think that half an empanada made the trip from Maine to Orlando a year ago? And, no, no. Okay. No, where would I get empanadas in Maine? Yeah, Maine is not really well known for its uh, empanada industry. You know who else doesn't uh, have an empanada industry, and that's ancient Mesopotamia. Oh, man. It was a stretch, wasn't it? Where's our Segway stinger? Segway. Yes. <laughs> Most experts agree civilization started in ancient Mesopotamia. That is where the great civilization of Sumar developed in what is now modern day Iraq. But it wasn't until the early 1900s, while archaeologists were exploring a region in Iraq, that that they made a most unusual discovery. What archaeologists uncovered were several artifacts that date back 7,000 years. These artifacts were figurines that appeared to be both humanoid and reptilian. These figurines represent art from the Ubaidian culture that flourished in Mesopotamia between 4,000 and 5,500 BCE. 
Their origin is relatively unknown, but what we do know is that they lived in mud-brick houses in large settlements. They developed not only agriculture, but agriculture using sophisticated forms of irrigation. That's pretty advanced stuff for the time. These settlements were comprised of large houses that were T-shaped, their streets were paved, and there were lots of public gathering places and open courtyards, a fairly what we would consider modern city. According to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, these large settlements developed from villages to towns to cities which included monumental buildings and temples. One such city was known as Ur, Ancient texts from Sumaria claim that Ur was believed to be the very first city. So cool. Getting back to these 7,000-year-old lizardman figurines, uh, they were discovered in 1919 by Harry Reginald Hall. The collection of figurines include both men and women, male and female, depicting various postures. Most of the figurines appeared to be wearing some sort of helmet, and shoulder pads of some sort, like Scully in the X-Files. <laughs> the statues have long heads and almond-shaped eyes, and the long faces taper into a reptilian-type nose. Some appear to be holding a scepter or a staff, and a scepter or staff is commonly thought to be symbolic in terms of uh, justice and ruling. But the strangest figurine of all is a humanoid figurine with a reptilian face that appears to be female. She is holding what appears to be a humanoid reptilian child to her breast, and the child is suckling milk. No one knows for certain what they represent or what the artist was trying to depict. No one knows for certain they were suckling milk either. Could have been Kool-Aid. You don't know. That's true. Art is subjective. But what is the message beyond this? What does it represent? Archaeologists say the posture these statues take, like the example of the female breastfeeding lizard, mm -hmm. do not suggest that they were some sort of ritualistic object. We really don't know for certain what information they were trying to memorialize or pass on, but what we do know is that these figures were important to these people for some reason. And we do know that the serpent is representative for many different gods in many different religions and cultures, including the Sumerian god Enki, who is often represented as a lizard. Okay. Enki was the Sumerian god of water, knowledge, craft, and creation. He's also associated with a southern band of star constellations. Can you see where I'm going with this? A little bit. He was part of the Anunnaki a group of deities of the ancient Sumerians and ancient Babylonians. The earliest Sumerian writings about them is that they were gods that came from the heavens, and their primary function was to decree the fate of humanity. Now, there has been some work, for example, uh, Chariots of the Gods, Eric Von Daniken, right. where he claimed that uh, the Anunnaki were ancient extraterrestrial astronauts that visited prehistoric Earth and that they were a reptilian-like humanoid race. In the 1976 book, The Twelfth Planet, Zachariah Sitchin claimed that the Anunnaki were in fact an advanced extraterrestrial species from an undiscovered planet called Nibiru. How would we know what it was called? Or is that the, just the name that he called it? I think it was based on his translation of ancient Sumerian text. Oh, okay. 
Nibiru is a theoretical planet that is in our solar system but has an elongated elliptical orbit that takes 3,600 of our Earth years to make one orbit around the Sun. Wow. So it only enters our solar system every 3,600 years, so the theory goes. It's proposed that its orbit when it approaches the solar system passes closely by Earth between Earth and Mars, and that every 3,600 years when that happens, it creates some sort of a calamity taking place on Earth because of the gravitational effect of this rogue planet. It's also often referred to as Planet X or the Ninth Planet. In this theory, the orbit is on the outer region of the solar system. Its gravitational effects could explain the peculiar clustering of orbits for a group of of extreme trans-Neptunian objects as they're called, bodies beyond Neptune that orbit the Sun at distances averaging more than 250 times that of Earth. Now, because of the object's type of orbits and the way that they tilt, the alignment suggests that there is an undiscovered planet that may be shepherding the orbits of these most distant known solar system objects. Zachariah Sitchin claims the Anunnaki came to Earth 500,000 years ago. They constructed a base. Now, this is all based on his interpretation of ancient Sumerian texts. Okay. He claims the Anunnaki came to Earth a half million years ago. They constructed a base of operation in which is now modern-day Iraq to mine gold after discovering that Earth was rich with this precious metal. The theory is that they needed gold to use in some sort of filtration system for the atmosphere on their home planet. You should use charcoal, it's cheaper. Sitchin's theory is that the Anunnaki hybridized their species with Homo erectus by in vitro fertilization in order to create humans, as we know them today, as a slave species to mine the gold for them. Why IVF? He didn't think that they could uh, get it on? Unclear. (laughs) He's the one that's interpreting the texts. Okay. Not me. He claims that the Anunnaki were forced to temporarily leave Earth's surface to orbit the planet when Antarctic glaciers melted, causing the Great Flood, which also destroyed the Anunnaki bases on Earth. The bases needed to be rebuilt, so when the Anunnaki returned to the surface of the planet, they taught mankind things like agriculture because they needed the humans to help in this massive rebuilding effort. He says the Anunnaki built the pyramids and all of the monumental structures around the ancient world that ancient astronaut theorists, you know I was going to use that term. I sure did. Considered impossible to build without highly advanced technology. So, could these reptilian humanoid figurines from 7,000 years ago depict that hybridizing of a reptilian-like species with Homo erectus? Could it be? Could it be? Particularly that female humanoid lizard woman breastfeeding a humanoid lizard baby. I love that it can't just be... Oh, that artist wasn't very good. (laughs) It's like, nope, lizard people, aliens, elliptical orbit. It's a fascinating idea. But as far as Zachariah Sitchin's writings go, and I've read a couple of books. I read read his book, The Twelfth Planet, Mm -hmm. and also uh, the book of Enki. Uh, Fascinating stuff. But as far as his writings go, they've been universally rejected by mainstream historians who label his books as pseudo-archaeology claiming that he seems to deliberately misinterpret Samaritan texts by quoting them out of context. 
And there's this little fact that he also predicted that the Anunnaki would return to Earth in 2012, which corresponded with the end of the Mesopotamian long count calendar, and he was obviously wrong there. Is he, though? Because maybe they did return and they're just running amok in secret, selling babies in Wayfair wardrobes. Damn. You're weird. <laughs> but regardless of what uh, mainstream researchers think of... Uh, Zachariah Sitchin's books, it doesn't change the fact that those 7,000-year-old breastfeeding human lizard baby statues are real. <laughs> we just don't know what the ancient Sumerians, if anything, were trying to tell us. Breastfeeding baby lizard statues. Can that be the title, please? My information came from Archaeology Today. Ancient Origins, Wikipedia, and Zachariah Sitchin's book, The Book of Enki. Well, that was fun. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house, yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off 
plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. And now, that thing in the middle. Tutankhamun's tomb was first discovered in 1922. An archaeologist, Howard Carter, was stunned by the astonishing array of grave goods, totaling more than 5,000 artifacts. There was gold and ebony, silver and ivory, precious jewels, weapons, furniture, fine linen, but also this, a small piece of cloth. It was later determined that this was King Tut's condom, and apparently it was deemed essential for him to take into the afterlife. Oh, we got another email about your uh, Statue of Liberty poem. Oh, yeah? Yep. It starts out, it's from um, Mr. Mack. Apoplectic greetings and kindest salutations. After hearing Kat read that theoretical poem, when everyone knows the Statue of Liberty doesn't even exist, <laughs> I have to know, what other bullshit are you all going to be spewing in the future? I mean, what's next in the Box of Oddities propaganda project? That birds are real? That Wyoming actually exists? Enough of perpetrating your bullshit propaganda. Also, I'd rather eat a big old scoop of Parmesan cheese ice cream while waiting in the water of a beach covered in gold-flecked horse shit than ever try another bite of tea berry ice cream. It tastes like Pepto and bad memories. Thanks for sharing that. That's <laughs> good to know. Yeah, the hate toward the Statue of Liberty sonnet <laughs> stirred up a lot of correspondence. We got this. Cat and Jethro, I've listened to every single Box of Oddities episode since the beginning. It's my favorite podcast and gets me through long hikes, freeway commutes, and trips to the gym, frequently causing me to laugh out loud at inappropriate moments. I was just finishing up my session last Friday when I heard Kat's story about all the facts surrounding the history of the Statue of Liberty. Most of them were brand new to me. It was really a very cool segment. What knocked me out was the surprise you had at the end of the episode. Do the kids still call those Easter eggs? <laughs> Kat read the verbiage from the plaque at the base of the Lady Liberty, and standing there, sipping my water, wiping my forehead, I found myself moved to tears by the words she was reading. It was beyond powerful. Because it was such a great reminder of what a grand experiment America herself has been. We've had more than our share of mistakes and tragedies along the way, but we remain the greatest country on the planet. And in light of recent events, we have proven ourselves to be resilient in the face of many who want to destroy America. We are stronger than those who hate us. Aww. I'm almost done here, I promise. I was shocked then to hear the email from a subscriber who felt that Kat's recitation of those words was pushing an agenda and asking you guys to stick to entertainment. I get the sense that you two have gone out of your way to stay away from political discussions, but I really appreciated you guys taking the time to take us to the base of the Statue of Liberty and read those words to us. <laughs> if reciting words that celebrate the joys of freedom and liberty is seen as political, that listener may want to find another podcast just for close-minded people. And there are scads of them out there, I checked. <laughs> mm. Sincerely, Ken W., Los Angeles, California. Thank you, Ken W. Thank you. And in the same vein from Christopher, hi, Kat and JG, just got done listening to Box 454 with the, quote, angry patriot 
near the end. And that made me go back and listen to your reading of the poem. Now, I have to come clean and say I normally don't listen all the way to the end. I know I'm a bad listener, but I'm glad I heard about this Easter egg because not only was it my first time hearing that poem, but just the way you presented it with the music and everything sent shivers down my back and made me tear up. Anyway, thank you for all the joy you bring for all us freaks, and thanks also for the little bit of light-hearted snacking we do now and then with the shallow end. <laughs> Keeping my ginger-shaded freak flag flying, which is not easy to say, Christopher. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The curator was at a party a few weeks back where he learned that a woman in the neighborhood subscribes to this podcast but had no recollection of hearing the curator. Weird about her house fire that night, don't you think? This is The Box of Oddities. Big thanks to Diane Robbins for suggesting this topic. It took me a while to get to it. She suggested it in 2021, um, but we got there. Shavarsh Karapetian was born in Armenia, May 19, 1953. He showed early promise as an athlete and trained in gymnastics, but his coach said that he had started too late to become a champion. Shavarsh finished eight years of school and then attended a technical school for auto mechanics, but he was also working at becoming a swimmer. But according to his coach, he lacked the necessary flexibility. So Shavarsh and his brother, Kamo, both became fin swimmers. This is a super popular discipline in Eastern Europe, and it consists of four techniques involving swimming with the use of fins, either on the water's surface using a snorkel or with monofins or bifins underwater, holding one's breath or using a circuit scuba diving equipment uh, while using the fins. 
Mono fins, for some reason, give me claustrophobia, and I don't know why. Interesting. Yeah. Shavarsh, who multiple times my app trying to change his name to Shark Rash, <laughs> had a very strong build and seemingly limitless energy, and it gave him a real edge. He was also incredibly hardworking and determined, and now that I've said all these things, I feel like I can also mention super dreamy. Shavarsh served in a Soviet Air Defense Force base in Baku in the military district. He ran up to 18 miles a day with a sand-filled backpack. He jogged with boards strapped to his feet and practiced holding his breath. While training, Shavarsh would carry a fellow swimmer on his shoulders while running hills along the shore of Lake Yerevan. Wow. Or he climbed those same hills on his hands while his teammate held his legs, wheelbarrow style. I got winded unpacking your half-eaten empanada. In 1972, the European Championships were held in Moscow, and Shavarsh won two gold medals, though I cannot imagine that that cleft in his chin made him very aerodynamic. (laughs) Anyway, by the age of 23, he had become a 17-time world champion, a 13-time European champion, and a 10-time world record breaker. He was awarded the Merited Master of Sport of the USSR, and that equates to being an international champion who's made a valuable contribution to the sport. However, he'd been cut from the Soviet national team without explanation. It was reflected by Shavarsh that perhaps it was because he was recently ill, or perhaps it was because he was Armenian. There has been historic prejudice against Armenians, and the Armenian genocide is still denied by many around the globe. On September 16th, 1976, Shavarsh and Kamu were training in Yerevan, which is the Armenian capital and the largest city in the country. It's also, P.S., one of the world's oldest continually inhabited cities. Just a fun little side note. Did they find lizard women breastfeeding lizard babies? Who hasn't? I found one while I was unpacking. (laughs) So the two were jogging alongside Yerevan Lake. Kamo, who's also a fin swimmer, they were near the end of Shavarsh's usual 13-mile run with a 45-pound bag of sand on his back when they heard a loud crash. Shavarsh said it was scary at first. It was so loud as if a bomb went off. It was actually a trolley bus which had gone out of control and fallen off a damn wall oh. and rolled down into a water reservoir. Now that's where my claustrophobia kicks in. Yeah. An internal government report faulted the driver for speeding, but some of the passengers said that the driver had actually been attacked by a pickpocket. And some others said that the driver had a heart attack. Mm. So it's hard to know exactly what went on. The trolley bus was carrying 92 passengers, and now it lay at the bottom of the reservoir some 25 meters offshore at a depth of 10 meters. That's 80 feet offshore uh, at a depth of 33 feet. Shavarsh and Kamo ran to... Ran? Shavarsh and Kamo ran to the reservoir, and Shavarsh asked his brother and coach to stay near the shore to do a sort of rescued passengers relay. Like a fireman's brigade. Just like that. But with drowning victims. And without hesitation, Shavarsh dove in. He had to break a window to give people a chance to escape, so he kicked out the glass of the back window. But the broken glass had sliced his leg. Pain was unbearable, but Shavarsh said that he couldn't take the time to think about it. 
Many of the occupants were unconscious from the impact, and it was impossible to see because when the bus hit the floor of the reservoir, it kicked up a ton of silt. So Shavarsh had to reach in and feel around for a person. No, thank you. Finally, he snagged a passenger and they rose to the surface. Kamo took the passenger from Shavarsh and got them to shore. He also stayed on shore in case Shavarsh himself needed to be rescued, which is actually really smart. But at first I was like, why are you letting your brother do all this work? But it makes a lot of sense. So... Shavarsh drove back into the gross cold water until he hit the roof of the vehicle, followed his way to the window that he'd broken out, and snagged another passenger. Blindly, by the way. How do you kick out a window underwater? I don't know. I think you have to be Shavarsh Karpetian because... uh, Maybe he was able to break the glass with his cleft chin. Maybe. It is chiseled, let me tell (laughs) you. Ooh. So hot in here. (laughs) Anyway, he, you know, is a professional fin swimmer. So he knew that the chance was high that the drowning people would instinctively drag him down. So he had to get them out of the bus and then he would kind of let them like struggle and pull him until they relaxed and their instinct to go to the surface overtook them. And then he would push off the top of the bus and swim to the surface it's like he was training for this it's it is like that he was definitely there at the right time yeah so after letting these people submerge him and getting them out of the water there was a pocket of air toward the back of the bus but he knew it wouldn't last long so he dove back in over and over and over again into the cold, dark water, swimming through the broken glass, forced to feel around for people. Each plunge took about 25 seconds for him. And a few people were able to get out of the window that Shavarsh had broken themselves. But swimming isn't like a big pastime in Armenia. Mm. Igor Safarian, who is the president of the Armenian Swimming Federation, estimates that only 30% of the population knows how to swim. So it's not just a matter of why aren't these people like getting out themselves. They wouldn't know what to do if they got out anyway. That's something else. After nine or ten dives, witnesses to the accident said that they could see Shavarsh's body was covered in crystals, which I can only imagine means ice crystals, like it was that cold. But maybe it was broken glass. Either way, it's not great. And let's not forget he's bleeding from his leg, I would assume, profusely. Yeah, it's not a great situation. News of the crash spread. Medics arrived and they were working on reviving passengers who were brought to shore. About two miles away in town, the brother's father, Vladimir, was told that there had been a trolley bus that had fallen into the lake. And Vladimir knew that Shavarsh and Kamo were training near the reservoir. So he worried that they had gotten on the trolley bus to get a ride home. And so he thought to himself, like, well, I'm really glad that I I made them both learn how to swim Mm. in the event that they had been in that accident. But he headed over anyway, you know, just to check and see what was going on. And he discovered that his sons were were saving people. Which must have been just a moment, right? Anyway, there was no time for Shavarsh to determine whether passengers were alive or dead as he pulled them from the trolley bus. He was going in blind. He was feeling around. He'd get a person. He'd pull them up. 
And he kept diving back until rescue workers begged him to stop. He was on the verge of fainting from lack of oxygen and exhaustion, and medics deemed that there was no chance that there were any remaining passengers in the trolley bus alive. And I'm sure he had no idea how many were down there. No. How would he know how many people were on the bus? Just going down and feeling around, which which sounded really filthy. I'm yeah, sorry. it did. Yeah. On his final dive, Shavarsh was so exhausted and so delirious, he emerged clutching a seat cushion instead of a person. And that's when the medics were like, okay, you can't go down there anymore. You're obviously in danger. Nine had escaped through the broken window on their own. And Shavarsh and Kamo estimated Shavarsh dragged 30 to 35 passengers out of the water. Two cranes arrived at the scene to lift the trolley bus from the lake. And so because he hadn't done enough, a police official asked Shavarsh to fasten the crane's cables to the trolley poles so that they could drag it from the lake. On his first attempt, the cables wouldn't stay attached, so he took a crowbar from one of the rescue boats and dove in again, smashing out the vehicle's side windows and then swimming to the other side so that he could kind of swoop the cable through the, you know, like... I can envision what you're you're, saying. You get what I'm saying. Shavarsh at this point was having a hard time standing. His father took off his shirt and wrapped it around the gashes on his leg. There is nothing more for you to do here, Vladimir told his son. So after all of this, with a t-shirt tourniquet, Shavarsh went home. He didn't seek medical attention? No, it wasn't until later that day when his temperature spiked that he went to the hospital. Your leg has a bit of a bus in it. So finally, Shavarsh took his sexy ass to the hospital, and Kamo said his brother was delirious and mumbling incoherently. He had a fever of 104 degrees. He was suffering convulsions. He had multiple lacerations from the glass shards, and the pollution from the lake had led to a septic fever. Oh, no. Plus, there was that double-sided pneumonia. He was also diagnosed with nervous exhaustion, which is described as extreme mental and physical fatigue caused by excessive emotional stress. So yeah, he's got some stuff going on. Mm -hmm. He spent days in critical care. It was three weeks before he was able to walk again, and he spent over a month in the hospital. But he recovered and was back in the pool immediately. But his respiratory system had suffered irreversible damage from the time he was in this toxic lake and the resulting pneumonia. Mucus would, like, come up every time he ran or swam. And mucus, while you're using a scuba mouthpiece, is especially problematic, as you can imagine. can see where it would be. Plus, there was the psychological barrier. Shavar said he hated getting in the water. It wasn't that he was scared of it. He just hated it. And he struggled with nightmares about the cushion that he pulled out of the bus. He said that could have been another life that he saved. But instead, he pulled a cushion from the bus. As though he hadn't done enough. Though, this dreamboat decided that he was just going to keep at it. He persisted and he trained every day. And by the time the USSR championship rolled around the following spring, Shavarsh sought to reclaim his perch 
atop the fin swimming world. So during the championship, he swam in a haze as his brother ran alongside the pool because he was worried he would just pass out Mm. and die in the pool. Because that's what happens when you have had pneumonia and you're just constantly horking up mucus while trying to swim at a professional level. Anyway, he won the gold and bronze medals at the European Championship in addition to setting a world record in the 400-meter event before he hung up his adorable swim shorts for good. But his heroism remained unknown. Immediately after the accident, some people wanted to publish an article in a newspaper, but it wasn't allowed. Officials did recognize Shavarsh and Kamo for participating in the rescue operation, but very quietly. Kamo said that both brothers received certificates and a financial reward of 38 rubles, which was about a quarter of the average Soviet workers' monthly wage at the time, Hmm. which the family returned. Kamo said, my father returned the money and their certificates. He said, my sons didn't do this for the money. Shavarsh said, in the USSR, trolley buses were not supposed to fall into the water. So it wasn't until six years later, a Moscow newspaper published the story. And only then did the people he rescued learn of the identity of their hero. So I'm wondering, though, that when the dad sent the money and the awards back, if they were like... Dad, come on. <laughs> the hell? I was going to buy some x-ray records. Now we need a sweeper for callbacks. <laughs> Zana Avetisyan, an aspiring nurse who was rescued from the trolley bus by Shavarsh, learned the identity of her savior amid this wave of publicity. She told a Russian journalist that it was only a few months after the accident that a man arrived at her door and said that he was the man who had saved her. And he asked her for her hand in marriage. But she said when she looked closely at the guy and saw his hands, she said, that's not him. Oh, wow. Carpetian had the kind of hands I would never confuse with another. Plus, there's that cleft chin. But even, I mean, those hands, right? Right. Another person who learned of Shavarsh's incredible heroics in the media was his wife, Nellie. The two met in 1981 and married shortly thereafter. He didn't tell his wife? He'd never mentioned it to her. When she saw news of it, she asked why I never told her. Yeah, and where's the award money? Shavarsh said... We need to make babies, not tell stories. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's just going on with his life, not worrying about it. Whatever. Wow. Until February 19th, 1985 rolls around. A shopping center in Yerevan caught fire. And Shavarsh, who was nearby, did not hesitate to enter the building, saving a number of people while suffering serious burns that kept him in the hospital for several days. Did he tell his wife? I think he told her about that one, yeah. Okay, because he comes home with like third degree burns. Never you mind. Let's get to baby Megan. (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. Shavarsh was later awarded the UNESCO Fair Play Award for heroism. Not long after, he moved to Moscow, where he founded a shoe company called Second Breath. His business grew, and I guess this is something I didn't know about, but I guess in this part of the world, Armenians are, like, known for being incredible cobblers. Really? Yeah. I'm not sure, like, how how that came to be, but I guess his business did really well, and he now owns restaurants and shops that sell clothes and groceries. 
Carpetian also took part in the 2014 Winter Olympics torch relay. He said that he carried the torch for both Russia and Armenia. At one point, actually, the torch went out and he made a joke about it. He was like, see what happens when you let an Armenian do something? (laughs) (laughs) What? He's just so self-deprecating and cute. (sighs) I lost my place. Oh, God. Shavar said of his multiple heroic acts, anyone can find himself in a place where somebody needs help. And more than once, too. At the age of 24, having set... 11 world records and holding 17 world championship titles, 13 European championship titles, and seven Soviet championship titles in underwater swimming. Shavarsh retired, but he calls himself a happy man and he believes that the lives he saved are his biggest achievement in his life. Wow. According to him, there are plenty of examples of humanism to be found today, as long as one looks close enough. Kindness, he says, is nurtured by love. We have to teach our children to love each other from the very beginning. Oh, my God. This man's not real. He might be an angel. (laughs) Are angels hot? I don't know. Of course they are. Okay. Have you ever seen an ugly angel? (laughs) I got my information from Russia Beyond, from AuroraPrize.com, Grantland.com, AllThat'sInteresting.com, and historyofyesterday.com. What a story. Oh, my God. Right? And what a chin, right? Do you want to see it? Again? I don't think I could handle it. I didn't show it to you before. What are you talking about? I Googled it during the story. Oh, did you see this, though? Holy shit. No. He looks like... um, One of the Belushis? No, he looks like uh, Kirk Douglas, the old movie actor. Michael Douglas's father. Oh, I'm going to look it up. Is it Kirk? Yeah. Oh, you're not wrong. Mm. Kirk has more of that dimpled chin, where Shavarsh has that clefty chin. I see. Okay. They're both doing okay, though. Great story. It was inspiring. As always, we appreciate you guys hanging out with us here, The Box of Oddities. Uh, Our website, theboxofoddities.com. There you can find all kinds of cool stuff. You can support the podcast there. You can uh, find our link to our merch store and our contact information, which we've just recently updated. I just got a message from my sister not long ago that said, I need a Bill Murray t-shirt. And I was like, it's on our merch store. Just go and get one. Well, we got to wrap this up because we have uh, many half-eaten empanadas to unpack. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into 
unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.